last week in McCracken where I'm convener and that's where I am when I'm not here usually. I get into the pulpit, which you have to do, and I looked down at the clock and it said 11.26 and I thought, oh, that's great, that was quicker than normal, so I've got plenty of time. So I preached and looked down at the clock at the end and it was still 11.26. (laughs) But not in real terms, you might imagine. Imagine it stopping right in the middle of a service. Could it not have stopped at quarter past six and I would have known that it wasn't working. Today I look up at the clock and it says five to one. See you next week. (laughs) Anyway, John chapter four. I absolutely love it. If I go back to that time in my 17th year when I decided to look into this person of Jesus, everything that attracted me to Jesus and caused me to give up the life I was living to follow him is in this chapter. I fell in love with the chapter much later, one midweek in First Antrim, when John Dixon took us through this passage that um, Emma read so wonderfully. If you were able to listen to just the way that was read and the story that we're in here. It is just an amazing story, beautiful story, and full of stuff. What attracted me? Well, you'll not be surprised at the eccentric kind of left-field craziness of my life was absolutely attracted to the subversive smashing of every cultural default that there is. Jesus just smashes the way it is here in this incredible story of subjective connection that destroyed all the objective, everything that was going on in his culture and society, and indeed ours. The default was smashed to smithereens right here. The reckless love of those that society find unlovable, the reckless love that was in total disregard for his own reputation, Whatever the righteous, self-righteous, religious snobs say, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, no matter what the gossiping around me is going to be. It's right here in this passage. And of course, as we've been singing about our thirst being quenched, and as already Michael has had John 10 and 10, which is pivotal to this entire gospel that we're looking at at this moment in time, Right here, the Samaritan woman is offered that great truth of life and life in all its fullness. As someone just coming out of the discovery of the Beatles, hippydom and punk rock, this Jesus met everything that was going on around me in a way that the music asked the questions, Jesus gave the answers. The music told us how it was and that it needed to change. Jesus changes it fundamentally. So let's try and go through this. And I am thinking that maybe some other time we'll come back to an entire series just on this story. But let me race through it this morning. Let's recognize a picture. Sectarian division. Hundreds of years of enmity. 750 to 800. Neighboring borders that clearly divide. Political allegiances that certainly divide. Religious variations from the same source that divides. Differences in how to worship God. Polarization, prejudice, 
apartheid on the streets. Familiar scenario? Twadell Avenue? No. The time of Jesus. At the start of this, as he heads from Judea back to Galilee, he has to cross that border of the enemy. Most Jews would go round because they wouldn't even walk through that. And I know many good Protestants from the north that certainly at least during the Troubles would never go down there. Because if we go down there, we'll be given money to the Ra or other such myths or misunderstandings. Polarization, prejudice, apartheid. This is what Jesus was dealing with. And right here, he crosses the boundaries of politics, religion, race, and gender. You see, in this part of the world, there was two for God's and. For God and Judea and Galilee, the Jews, and for God and Samaria. And both were pretty strident and adamant. It may be that the reason the Jews went around was not because of their prejudice, but because of the fear that they might have of attack coming against them as they walk through Samaria. But Jesus transcends the for God and to say for God and his glory alone. Econi, 1988, 25 years ago, that statement that they brought out with all the biblical references of how Christians should live in a divided, sectarian, polarized society just relaunched on 1010. You can't make it up a few weeks ago. For God and his glory alone. Not for God in Ulster. Not for God in Ireland. Jesus transcends to the truth and the spirit of what it's all about. This is the birth from above that we looked at in chapter 3. Something that takes the horizontal and pulls it apart because in the vertical, in our connection with God and in God looking down, something transcends how it is and how it should be. The boundaries are smashed. Subversive cultural smash. But there's more. There's much more. Because not only does he engage with Samaritans, not only does he go through where he shouldn't go through, but who he converses with is a woman. Not only a woman, but a woman of disrepute. Now, as I've read over this during the last week, I've discovered that men in those days, there were sort of get-out clauses if you had to talk to your mother. But if it was your wife or your sister or your aunt or anybody else as a man, you did not talk to a woman. Jesus sits down at a well. A woman comes who obviously is coming at that time of the day from where she has come from because nobody else in the village wants to hang out with her and she's quite embarrassed to be around them because of her lifestyle. And Jesus immediately engages in the most beautiful way if we listen carefully to the reading. And it didn't take me long this week to go back to that story that I've shared with you before, but who would I be to have the, such an ego to think you would remember it, of living on Adelaide Street for those few months back in 1994 when they had kindly bombed Deravulgi and uh, I wasn't able to get in for a few months. I got a flat on Adelaide Street. 
And every morning I would walk out past the prostitute sitting on my step and head down to church house, trying to avoid a glance or a stare. And then one morning, one morning something deep within me asked me the question the whole way to my office in church house. Is that the discipleship of the scriptures? To not be able to engage with these women who need people to engage with them? In all the courses and conferences of discipleship that I'd ever been at, nobody taught me how to engage with disreputable women. Ah, good Presbyterianism, maybe. Very bad biblical exegesis, though. Because right here, we find that Jesus... We find here that Jesus smashes all the culturally boundaries and speaks truth in love to the woman at this well. I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to look at his mask for the next 15 minutes, so that kind of works out quite nice. Um, Why was I not taught those things? Well, it was that reputation thing again, wasn't it? You shouldn't be hanging out or you shouldn't be engaged with or you shouldn't be going to, which I grew up with. And yet here Jesus isn't interested in his reputation. He was a man of no reputation and by the wise considered a fool when he spoke about faith and forgiveness in a time when the strongest arms ruled. But this man of no reputation loved the weak with relentless affection. And he loved all those poor in spirit, just as they were. He was a man of no reputation. The words of my friend Rick Elias, sung by Rich Mullins, this man of no reputation loved the weak with relentless affection. And he loved all those poor in spirit, just as they were. I didn't know the first hymn was going to be that. He was a man of no reputation. I believe we're all called to such reputations. I believe if we're not following Jesus the way we should be following Jesus, that nobody will talk about us. But if we're following Jesus the way that he tells us to follow him, then we're bound to be talked about. Was Ken not? Was Fitzroy not? Once you find yourself where you shouldn't be amongst the wrong people, you will find your reputation in tatters, but the kingdom of God going with you. This is the incarnation of John chapter 1, right here in chapter 4. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And right here, it's a dodgy neighborhood. But it's where Jesus, it says at that start, we don't know why. What is the reason? Was it geographical? Was he in a hurry? Did he have to get back to his mother? Why did he have to go through Samaria? Because none of the rest of them had to go through Samaria. Was this why? Because Jesus had to show us all these things from this story in chapter 4. Jesus moving into the neighborhood. We've looked at how John's editorial of this gospel is just really, really quite powerful. And if you want to find the, you know, moving into the neighborhood, there he is at a wedding party, turning the water into wine, moving right into the neighborhood. The next thing, oh, let's shift that to the temple where he's taking on the religious. Then let's find him with Nicodemus in the dark of night, religious leader looking at theology, somebody really spiritual, really holy, really close to where God might be in the dead of night in the quiet. 
then the next chapter, he's out in the heat of the day with a woman who's not very close to God in the view of the religious, never mind the Jewish religious. Jesus moving into neighborhood after neighborhood because John has so carefully dealt with this in his editorial. When we're with the wrong people in the wrong places, all kinds of right things are going to happen. I am never ceased to be amazed when I talk to Jonathan or Heather or Anna, Chris and Botanic or those who do night reach, those who are in connections in our neighborhood with all those people that we haven't really connected very well with for a long time. How many times one of them will say, do you know, I got to pray with them. Can you believe that? Or you're never going to believe it, Steve. I was just about to go home and she says to me, okay, tell me about this Jesus thing. If we were just within the walls here, if we weren't in the wrong places, if we weren't trying to take the kingdom into places that are a little bit unreached in our communities, then we would never have those opportunities. And Jesus leads us wonderfully to this. Jim Wallace, when he was here, talked about that a little bit. And one of his, I think it might have been when he was out at Skenos, he said, I always find, it was an answer to a question, I always find I learn most when I'm in the wrong place among the wrong people. Because maybe that's where we find Jesus the most. And he also said this, and it was, it sort of lingered with me for a long time. He took that verse in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. Jim said that underlying that verse from Peter is this idea that we will be among people to the point that they're going to eventually say, tell me, what has you here? Why are you asking me for a drink of water? Why are you talking to a Samaritan woman? Why are you doing this? Why are you out at two o'clock in the morning giving me bacon buddies? Why are you down in the lower Ormo engaging in a community that's really not very Presbyterian? Why? Why? It's that premise that Peter comes back with always have a reason for the hope that was within you. The lives we live will cause the questions to stir that will give us an opportunity to answer it. And can I say, here in Fitzroy, we have this incredible crossroads of three roads coming together, botanic and all that that is, all the commerce and all the nightlife and daylife and everything else. We've got Queen's University in behind us, and then we have this holy land. And as we look at all those, there's different ways in which we have to sit down at different wells during the week to try and minister to the place that we're called to. But if we were looking for as close a place as we could in the scriptures to Samaria, we have an advantage that most other Presbyterian churches don't have, because right around us is a Samaria different religion, different politics, different allegiances, many people struggling with all kinds of injustices and poverty and brokenness. And here we are, about to build somewhere that we are hoping, as well as giving us the halls to do our pastoral and worship and spiritual formation, will give us a window and a door and an arm into this community that can sit at the well of the holy lands, as they're called, in order that we might be missional. But first, you're panicking at that word, aren't you? You're thinking, has he only got to the introduction now? 
really I haven't. First, as we're asked to be subversive societal smashers, and secondly, as we're going to be disciples following Jesus into these dodgy neighborhoods, here's the overriding thing that gives us the energy to do that, the guidance to do that, the power to do that, or something to give as we go to do that. It's this living water that Jesus talks about. The water I give you, you'll never thirst again. This is what we need in order to be able to do what Jesus is calling us in this passage to do. This is the life in all its fullness. How does it work itself out? Well, springs of living water, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 17, Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Something in that psalmist about looking for living water. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you. Or a little bit later in chapter 7, we'll come to where Jesus is offering the Holy Spirit as that which would bring us and make us those that would overflow with water as we go for him. Jesus has turned water into wine in chapter 2. He's talked about the water of new birth in chapter 3. And now he comes to offer this living water to the woman at the well. Jesus is claiming to quench all of our thirsts. Now, if we go back to the last few Sunday nights, I couldn't help as I came to this to think, we've touched on that in personal stories. When Bill McKnight shared in very raw and honest ways how he's dealt with his mental illness. Maybe read a few funny, if provocative, poems in the middle, but did that amazing story of that poem of friends not phoning back, and then him becoming a friend because he'll phone back. If we go back to that night in Bill, we find that people around us are seeking to have their thirst quenched. And that night we looked at all those needs we had, Love, security, significance, the miraculous, and hope. All the yearnings within each one of us. All the yearnings within all of those who are not coming to worship this morning because they're playing golf or walking the dog or cycling by the toolpath or whatever it is they decide might quench their thirst more than gathering together with those who follow Jesus. Looking for these deep thirsts. What is going to bring us that love? secure love, some significance or belonging or purpose in the world that we're living in, some hope to live for something. Jesus is saying to this woman, listen, if you take this living water I give you, all the thirsts that you have deep within you will all be met. And it's not just about food and water, because as we read a bit later when the disciples come back and they say to him, did somebody come and feed him? He says, it's not that food that I live for. There's something about doing the will of God that actually at times you don't need to drink or eat the physical stuff because the spiritual has you so adrenaline rushed that you're not as hungry and thirsty physically because the spiritual is met with. One commentator this week, and again, this stuck with me because there were so many directions I could have taken in this. He talked about the image of free-flowing water was something that the people of that day would have understood when Jesus talked about living water. Those images of the Old Testament would come back. But it was also the difference between those stagnant pools. Shucks, we call them in Balamina. Spell that if you could. I'm trying to explain to Hannah what a shuck was. But shuck is actually what the antithesis of this living water is. It's that kind of stagnant, non-moving clogged up with dirt and gunge and every other thing, just not even 
bleh. Living water, on the other hand, flows like we were out with the dog on Friday morning that was flowing down the Lagan Meadows Hills because there was so much water and this fresh rainfall water was just piling down, energized, full of life, full of vitality. And this is what Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman about. Her life is stagnant. It's like a shock. It's clogged up with these broken relationships, these relationships where she's given herself and hasn't found in these relationships that she's given herself anything that's life-giving. It's all been life-sapping. Nicodemus was a bit the same in the chapter before. Oh, yes, he was religious. He wasn't caught up in all those adulterous relationships, but it was stagnant with religiosity and self-righteousness and all these other things. And if we're going to be those who can smash the cultural norms, if we are going to be those who can go into the dodgy neighborhoods and be asked to give a reason for our faith and lead people to Jesus, then we're going to need to ask ourselves, what makes us stagnant? What makes us like shucks? What are the things going on inside us that we need to deal with? I had two conversations this week that brought me back to this question about us all. What is it like to be the minister in Fitzroy? So wealthy, all with positions in their jobs and a lot of power in their lives. That was the question for the pastor. And I answered it like this. I said, wonderfully, I feel I'm in a church, in a community, where those things that we all have are not what we live for. We have them, yes. I look out at you and you have them. But you don't live for them. You live for something more than that. But here was what push came to shove on and my fear as a pastor. When we have those things, they can distract us. They can hold us down. They can make us stagnate because we have to deal with them and they're not easy things to deal with. I would suggest they're harder things for us to deal with than the Samaritan woman. I always find in the townships of Cape Town when I was there, The poor have everything to gain from following Christ. Those who are wealthy in position and power have an awful lot to lose. What are the things that stagnate us? Cause us to be distracted. Where is our clutter and clatter? Our flabbiness and our splatter? Our distractions and our obsessions? Our habits and the holding of us down? Because here this morning, in this story, Jesus calls us in Northern Ireland in 2013 to smash the cultural norms. We had John Kyle and Declan Kearney in the L-shaped room this week, and it was very powerful to hear the PUP and Sinn Féin argue, talk, discuss. But one of the fears you would have is that for us who are middle class and Presbyterian, that it's great to have the discussion. Oh, aren't we great in Fitzroy Clonard? We can have that discussion. Actually, to have a warm and cuddly feeling because we've had the discussion would be awful. The thing that they threw back at us, both of them, the one thing they agreed on was political leaders will not bring the peace in Northern Ireland. It will be all of us and all of us are leaders. 
And when Declan said that, I went, all of us are leaders? Come on, fella, don't call that. He said, we're parents. We're brothers and sisters. We're leaders in youth groups. We've got friends. We've got positions in work. All of us are leaders. People listen to us all. And if we start to change the way we speak and the people we hang out with, we can smash the norms of the society that we live in. We're called to that. We're called to be disciples that will go to the broken, the marginalized, those who the rest of society have left out. We are called as the people of God to sit down at that well. But if we're going to, it starts here. What are the things that cause us to be stagnant, spiritual, Presbyterian pools, rather than the vitality of living, glorious life-giving water to the people of our city. What is it in my life? What is it in yours? And what is it in our lives as a community? Because when Jesus offered the living water, let's pray. just for a moment in silence let's ask a few questions and see if the spirit might give answer if Jesus was coming to your well this week where is that well where is the place where maybe you hide from everyone else what would it be that he would talk to you about What are the things that make you stagnant? Because gently and graciously he asked her to bring her husband. He pointed out one of those things that needed dealt with in her life. What might Jesus point out in my life? in your life, in our communal life. As he offers this living water, are we up for reputations to be damaged? the cost it might be to our time, our money, our energy? Is it our time, our money, and our energy that we're trying to quench our thirst with? Or is it obedience to Jesus? And then, where might he want us full of this living water to go? What wells has he before us this week where people are sitting, waiting, for someone to come with grace and love and the truth of Jesus. Where might he lead us? Who might he lead us to? Where do we need to engage the word made flesh in a dodgy neighborhood? Lord, this is an incredible passage of scripture, an incredible story of Jesus engaging And so we pray that we would let it seep into our lives, maybe go away and read it again this week. 
and ask ourselves, what is our response? Deal with us, Lord. Fill us with this living water. Give us this life in all its fullness. And then send us out to those who need this living water and who need this life in all its fullness. That we might be Jesus. Because he did say, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Whom shall you send, Lord? Whom shall you send? Let us answer in our own hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.